0: You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. So as Pastor Ben said, today we continue our series on the Gospel of Mark, and specifically looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. And I've titled this message, Is It Lawful? And I'm emphasizing the L in lawful there, because uh, that's to stress that there's a that the question isn't isn't awful, which hopefully is not the question that will be in your mind as you're, you're hearing this message, but we'll see. But is it lawful, and specifically, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's actually the full question that's posed before us in the passage today. A question that may seem fairly simple, however, the answer to it uh, may not be as straightforward, and I can, can guarantee you it's not. In fact, it's probably reasonable to say that this is one of the most uh, more controversial topics in the Bible and in church history, that different people, different theologians, different denominations have and continue to have significantly different opinions on. In fact, the entire existence of the Protestant church, of which we're a part, can at least be partially or perhaps maybe even completely attributed to this very subject. And for any of you familiar with the history of King Henry VIII, you might know what I mean, and perhaps a bit more on that later on. But is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, is the question we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And it's going to be a two-part message. So part one, we're going to be looking at the verses, and then part two, we're going to be looking behind the verses. And that might sound a little bit mysterious, and maybe it is, but I want to mention it now for two reasons. Number one, please don't just listen to part one of the message. And also, secondly, even if you're not interested particularly in the subject of divorce, hopefully there'll be something in this passage for you um, at the end. So we'll see. But before we even read the passage, there's a few things I want to mention. Uh, Three things, in fact, three prefaces. And these aren't the three sermon points, uh, just three introductory things. They are diversity, expertise, and observation. So in terms of diversity, uh, one of the things I love about Sun Life Church is that we're a really diverse church. You know, we're here in Leaderville, but we've got people from north, south, east, and obviously west, uh, west as well. And uh, we've got people from all sort of different nations and also people from uh, born here in Australia, too. We've got uh, different age groups as well, from young to old. And you can probably tell where I'm going with this. We also have a diversity as well in terms of people's relationship status. We've got people who are single, people in new relationships, we've got people who are married, and we've got people who, through different life circumstances, have found themselves single again. And also people in new marriages, too. And... The point I want to make here is that whatever your current status is, is that you are welcomed in this church, you are loved in this church, you're part of our family. And the reason I want to stress this is that this message is not to bring any sort of division, that's not the plan, but really to hopefully get all of us to have a greater understanding of each other. So the second introductory point is expertise, and by expertise I mean my own, or rather my lack of it, because I am not an expert in the subject of divorce. So, why am I talking about it? I don't know, I have suspicions. (laughs) but (laughs) Oddly enough, this is a situation that I'm reasonably accustomed to doing. I'm kind of an expert in not being an expert. And the best way I can give an example of this is about 10 years ago, I was a newly graduated radiologist. I uh, just finished my training and was really just sort of finding my feet. So in that context, one of my senior colleagues, who was the head of the Australian-New Zealand Abdo radiology um, conference, which happened each year, he asked me to speak on a particular topic. And the topic doesn't matter. It was on gallbladder polyps. But the problem was, was that I knew nothing about them at all. So fast forward six months later, I'm at the Brisbane Convention Centre. I'm standing in front of like 230-plus consultant radiologists, 99% of whom are more senior than me, and I'm talking about this particular topic. Now, I'm not going to show you all the slides because obviously it's not relevant, except for one slide, which is my final slide, and it's this. So (laughs) these were my references. And the, the reasoning behind it was this, is that... No one wanted to hear what James Yao thought about this subject. I mean, why would they? But what they might be interested in was what the literature said, you know, what the evidence said, what the science said. And really, that's my same approach, approach today as well, is that no one's here to listen to my opinion on this, but let's look at the word together. Let's study it and see if we can figure it out together. That's always the case, but I think especially so today. My third introductory thing is um, to do with observation, and this is not really a point. It's a bit of an exercise that I thought we'll do together, um, something some of you may have done before. So what I want to everyone to do right now is for everyone to look directly at me. Now, this is a very awkward thing for me because I'm in- inherently an introvert and I've you know, struggled to maintain eye contact just in normal conversation. But I'm doing this for a reason, because I don't want you to look down, but looking directly at me, I want you, just from your memory, try to remember what your watch looks like, if you happen to have one. If you like, you can close your eyes, and we can all feel a bit more comfortable. Uh, But just try to remember in detail what it looks like. You know, what material is it made of? It doesn't matter whether it's analog or it's a digital watch. Um, If it's an analog watch, I guess, you know, try to remember what, you know, the the hands look like. If it's digital, think about like, what colors it is, what sort of fonts um, there are, what information date and day, all that sort of thing. So in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to look down, and we're going to see how accurate we are in trying to remember exactly what our watch looked like. So one, two, three, everybody have a look at your watch now. And look at all those things. Like, you know, Did you get it right? Could you actually remember all those things accurately? All right. So everybody looking up at me again, so don't look at your watch anymore. If you think you're pretty accurate, just put up your hand. Okay. Now, if you weren't that accurate, like maybe you forgot which watch you were wearing or something, or you're completely wrong, maybe put up your hand as well. Okay. And just still looking at me, the third question I have is this, is without looking down again, how many people can tell me what the time is? (laughs) Not many hands, maybe a few. And that's the thing, is that sometimes, we see what we want to see, our observation can be selective. And sometimes for myself, I'll specifically look at my watch to look at the time, I'll put it down, and I still won't know what the time is. All right? Does that happen to anyone else? Am I the only idiot who does that? (laughs) The point is, if we're not focused, sometimes we can miss information. And here the plan is to look with specific intent. As we read this passage, the question I want in your mind is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, So we're going to look at that passage. Before that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for your word, God. And as we look at this particular passage, this um, challenging passage, God, I just pray that you will grant us your understanding, God, that your Holy Spirit would really guide us through this passage. God, I pray that it would not just reach um, our minds, Lord, but it will also reach our hearts as well, and that you would also give us grace as we look through this. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right. So is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Part one, looking at the verses. So let's look a bit closely at the first four verses. Uh, Verse one, uh, and I'll be reading from the New English Translation, the Net Bible. Then Jesus left that place and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan River. Again, crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So it says Jesus left the place that he'd been teaching, you know, throughout uh, chapter 9. He was now in a different area beyond the Jordan River and was teaching. Verse 2. Then some Pharisees came in to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So that's really convenient for us because that's exactly the question that we want to ask ourselves today as well. He answered them, that is Jesus, what did Moses command you? So Jesus points them to the Old Testament and they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. So they give their answer. So there you go, so they ask Jesus, is it lawful? Jesus says, well, what's in the law? And they reply, the law says it's lawful. So it appears like it's all sorted, right? Case closed, Um, the answer to the question, is it legal? The answer is yes. All done, end of sermon, we can all go home. Well, the only issue was, as they say, the devil was in the details because there was actually more to the question. And for context, we have to historically consider what the different schools of thought on this issue were at the time. And in fact, there were two, basically, two different um, schools. There was the rabbinic school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And you can see this picture here, which is from Shalom Sesame, which is uh, Israel's version of uh, Sesame Street. And the thing about these two schools was that one of them tended to be more strict, uh, Shammai, and the other one was more lenient, uh, Hillel. So forgetting about the specific issue of divorce for the moment, um, I've got some examples. So the first example if you forgot to say grace at a meal and you had already gone somewhere else, Shammai, the more strict one, said, you've got to return to where you ate and then go back and say grace there. But Hillel, the more lenient one, said, no, 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 just say grace wherever you've remembered that you had forgotten to say grace. A second example, in terms of studying the Torah, the Old Testament, Shammai said that only people who were worthy should be able to study it, whilst Hillel said everyone should be able to study it because then they may repent and become worthy, right? So hopefully you're getting a bit of an idea here. One more example though, because in a very weirdly specific example about telling white lies and about what you should say to a bride at their wedding, the school of Hillel says that you should tell every bride she looks beautiful. Now, the school of Shammai, however, raised the question of, but what if she's not? Now, with that attitude, I think perhaps maybe Shammai had some personal issues you know, with, with divorce himself. I, I don't quite know. He was obviously not particularly popular with the ladies. But yes, Shammai was strict and Hillel was more lenient. As they say, Shammai binds and Hillel um, loosens. So in the context of the subject of divorce, they also disagreed as well. And the key verse that they disagreed about was the one that was paraphrased in the passage we just read. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. So both schools agreed on that. They said that was true. Yes, divorce was possible. What they disagreed upon was the circumstances in which that could occur. So what was the original verse that they were quoting? It was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, If a man marries a woman and she does not please him because he has found something unseemly, indecent, unclean in her, then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. Now, the reason those words are in brackets is because it's a word that's variably translated. Sometimes it's indecent, sometimes unclean, or sometimes just unseemly. And you can see how that specific translated word makes quite a bit of of difference to the interpretation. For those who followed the house of Shammai, for them, unseemly meant specifically adultery. And therefore, the only time that divorce was allowed was if there was adultery. However, as expected, Hillel had a bit more of a lenient take on it. And he said that unseemly could mean anything that didn't please the husband. So again, in a very specific example, uh, he gives an example if a wife burnt a meal, right? That could be grounds for divorce. So you know, if the wife turns the toast up to like, you know, dial number five instead of number three, well, it's been nice knowing you, cheerio, that's it. According to Hillel, it's a divorce now. So perhaps both Shammai and Hillel had some personal experience with divorce, I, I don't know. But getting back to our question, is it lawful? Well, we said the answer was yes. It was just the circumstances that were being argued about. But what about Jesus? What did Jesus reply in our passage? Verse 5. Jesus said to them, He wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. So it seems here at least that Jesus was not keen on the whole concept of divorce. This was really not part of God's plan, but a concession to them because of their hard hearts. And that phrase, hard hearts, should sound a little bit familiar to you as well. Perhaps most notably, as has been mentioned already, is the story of the Exodus, where God was using Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, but Pharaoh's hardened heart resisted, resisted it, despite the many plagues. In other words, it's almost like Jesus is saying, just like how God didn't want to send the plagues, but did so because of Pharaoh's hardened hearts, in the same way he didn't also want to allow divorce, but also did so because of our hard hearts. So going through 10 plagues, going through divorce, probably not a fair comparison, but maybe it indicates how hard divorce can be. So anyhow, if that's the case, then whilst the Torah says that the divorce is uh, legal, Jesus here seems to be saying that it was never ideal. And to be honest, I think everyone would agree with that. Even for those who may have been involved in a divorce, it was probably never anyone's original goal. No one gets married with the thought already of getting divorced. Well, apart from people, you know, planning to marry like very elderly male or female billionaires or maybe that sort of thing. But for the most part, no one aims for divorce. No one plans for it on their wedding day. But due to potentially a variety of reasons, relationships may and do break down. That's the reality. And as a result, divorce is something we largely have come to accept as a society. But as Jesus says here, it's a concession to a broken world. It's not the ideal. So, what is the ideal? Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus really doubles down here, and he says what God has joined together, let no one separate. That there's this union between people in a marriage that has an element of permanency, one that is not easily separated, the whole sort of one flesh concept. And um, as a previous pastor of mine, who happens to be Pastor Benny Ho, one of our external elders used to say to us when we were in uni, was that people are like sticky tape, that when you come together, there's this special union. And yes, you can separate, but when you do, Bits get torn off. Bits get ripped off. These connections that you make have an impact on your life. And sometimes those connections, unfortunately, are not good ones. People who have been unfortunate enough to be in abusive relationships, whether that be physical or mental or emotional, where separation is a necessity for their safety and welfare. This is something that is unfortunately of this broken world. But with counseling and time, and most importantly, God's healing work, you can receive healing. But those experiences aren't necessarily magically erased completely. They may form a part of who you are in the future, not necessarily things that will haunt or control or limit you, but they're things that may change the way you are, and hopefully in the long run for the better. So Jesus says here, divorce, it's a concession. It's not his ideal. It will seem like Jesus is very much against the whole concept of divorce in general. But in case there was any query about it, in verse 10 to 12, we get this further excerpt from a private chat that he has with the disciples afterwards. Uh, Let's read it. Verse 10. In the house once again, the disciples asked him about this. So he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here we get further information about a related topic or subsequent issue, I suppose. How about remarriage after divorce? Well, here, Jesus seems to be very strict about it. It appears he's saying that any marriage after divorce is wrong. But how about the exception of with adultery that we saw in Deuteronomy 24? I mean, is Jesus even more strict than Shammai? Is he saying no divorce at all? Well, before we make any conclusions about this, I want to make two points. The first one is the minor one, is that Jesus not only mentioned a husband divorcing a wife here, but also a wife divorcing a husband. And that latter situation was really quite rare in Jewish uh, culture, partly due to financial reasons. And some people feel that Jesus said it to include Gentile marriages, also in this discussion where the wife divorcing was more common, or perhaps it was quite a progressive sort of equal rights statement as well, reinforcing husband and wife for equal, different but equal, and therefore also paving the way for women to be able to divorce their husbands if they burnt their toast as well. It's hard to know, it's hard to be sure. However, the major point is this, is that this is not the only time that this particular episode about Jesus talking about divorce with disciples is recorded in the Bible. It's also in Matthew chapter 19. And we won't read the whole passage because it's very, very similar to Mark chapter 10. Jesus moves to a new place. The Pharisees ask him about divorce. He again mentions the creation and talks about hard hearts, except there are two notable differences in two different verses. In Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees ask, Is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? And that last bit is really important because it indicates that the question wasn't really about whether any divorce was legal, because it was. Everyone sort of agreed on that. But whether it was legal for any cause. In other words, the whole Shammai-Hillel issue. And most people think this was also the implied context as well for the Mark 10 chapter as well. And in verse 9, there's also one important additional clause. Matthew 99 says this, Now I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So this is caveat about immorality in the initial marriage, being a reasonable grounds for not only divorce, but remarriage. And as mentioned, this is an account of the same episode that we read about in Mark chapter 10, but with this exception clause, as we'll call it, now included. And in addition to Matthew 19, there was also a separate second episode where Jesus also talked about divorce. And that's in Matthew chapter 5, a lot earlier on, but with a similar statement. And I've got the two verses there, I think, on the next slide. It has that same exception clause as well, except for immorality. So now things appear a bit similar to Deuteronomy 24. There are exemptions allowing divorce. So does this make things any clearer? Well, perhaps not, because the word immorality is also subject to interpretation as well, just as the word unseemly was in the Old Testament. So is immorality a stronger word than the word unseemly? That is, is Jesus siding with Shammai there? Is he saying that divorce is for adultery only? Or is it broad, and could it mean sort of any kind of immorality, uh, even significantly uh, lesser things? Or was Jesus actually just referencing the Deuteronomy verse? Was he saying exactly the same thing? And therefore, are we no better off? Is there no progress between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do we have the same degree of uncertainty? Well, we can probably agree here that Jesus probably wasn't in support of Hillel, that is, divorcing for any reason at all. Because we remember his statement about hard hearts. He was definitely not encouraging divorce for trivial reasons. Not only that, I think we also get a clue from the disciples' response to what Jesus says here in Matthew 19. How did they respond? Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If this is the case of a husband with a wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples were pretty shocked. And perhaps we can guess from their shock that they were expecting a different answer. Maybe one closer to Hillel, being able to divorce for really any reason. They say, well, if the rules of marriage are this strict and we can't divorce for whatever reason we want to, maybe it's better not to marry at all. This is not very encouraging for people about to get married, by the way. (laughs) It would seem that people must have been divorcing for pretty arbitrary reasons. Like, you know, if the marriage doesn't work out, no worries, we'll just start another one. You know, that was the attitude. So the disciples say to Jesus, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, well, actually, it's not that bad. Or, you know, maybe I was saying it a bit too harshly. Well, let's have a look. Verse 11. He said to them, not everyone can accept this statement, except those to whom it has been given. For there are some eunuchs who were uh, were that way from birth, and some who were made eunuchs by others, and some who became eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this should accept it. And this is quite an interesting answer. He does, certainly doesn't say, oh, it's, it's not that bad. He actually goes the other way and says, not everyone can accept this statement. He acknowledges that it is difficult, marriage is only for the wary. And then the comparison he makes is also even more interesting because what he compares a commitment to marriage to is a commitment to becoming a eunuch. Now if you aren't super familiar with what a eunuch is, let's just say that it's a pretty final non-reversible decision that involves the removal of certain male body parts. So what Jesus is saying here is a pretty shocking statement. He's saying that marriage is a bit like having, you know, basically... (laughs) And every man's eyes widen just a little bit there. I should state that Jesus is not saying marriage is exactly like being a eunuch, but he is using this specific example uh, as a comparison, that it shouldn't be uh, something that's taken lightly. And therefore, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can accept this statement except to those to whom it has been given. So that's the gravity that Jesus gives to marriage, certainly more than Hillel and the common practice of divorcing for any trivial reason at that time. So where are we now at this approximate sort of halfway point? Our question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? We've inserted that exception clause now. We've looked at Mark 10, we've looked at the different two schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai, about whether the grounds for divorce was just adultery or for almost anything. We've also looked at Jesus' view on it, that it's not the ideal, which we agree with, but it's a concession. And we've looked at the same episode in Matthew 19, and we've also looked at the other one in Matthew 5, that there's this exclusion for immorality, whatever that actually means. I should also state that some passages we haven't actually looked at, and probably most significantly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And when I say 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I don't mean just part of it. I mean it's actually the entire chapter. And you can understand why we don't really have time to sort of delve into that in detail today. But this is a bit of a summary. Many agree that this chapter also gives biblical support for other reasons for divorce apart from adultery. For example, desertion of a believer by a non-believing spouse. And Paul seems to promote this idea quite clearly. Other people will also extend that to not just physical desertion, but any break in the covenant of marriage. So what sort of things? Well, many would say that includes abuse, whether that be mental, physical, emotional abuse. Uh, These are also important for safety, where at the very least some separation would be recommended. And some also would say that a break in the marriage covenant would be if the partner was not fulfilling their marital responsibilities. And that could mean sort of financially not providing, particularly important in those days, uh, where only the husband had an income but perhaps also in other ways of not fulfilling the marital responsibilities, including the euphemistic sense of marital uh, responsibilities there. Now, note these are just arguments for permissibility of divorce. They're not necessary commands to divorce. The general desire being to preserve marriage where possible, realising there were some instances where it's not possible. Knowing that often these exceptions are protective measures to protect the vulnerable party in marriages from being abused or otherwise taken advantage of. So it's at this stage, I want to take a bit of a sidestep. We've been looking at some different passages, albeit not all of them. We've, um, I mean, read 1 Corinthians 7 in more detail yourself. But let's also look how the church has handled this historically. And as a starting point, I thought we'd begin with the Roman Catholic Church, partly because its views have remained fairly constant throughout the centuries. So I've taken this uh, from the Catholic Australia website, which says, For two baptised persons... A valid sacramental marriage is indissoluble, and no one can cancel that bond, not even the church. So in their eyes, there's no reason for divorce at all. However, whilst divorce is not allowed under any circumstance, there is something called annulment, which if you're not familiar with, is described this way, annulment. If the church's tribunal discerns that despite a wedding ceremony and many of the features of a marriage, a complete and valid marriage did not occur, the tribunal may issue a declaration that a person is free to marry. In other words, you can't cancel a marriage, but you can say it never existed in the first place. And they stress that this is different to divorce. So why look at the Roman Catholic Church? Well, before 1533, it was the only Western church. And as we mentioned at the start of this message, there was this whole thing about King Henry VIII. And one thing you might know about King Henry VIII is that he had six wives. One died. One survived, two de-wedded, that is annulled, and then two beheaded, right? Well, what happened in 1533 was that Henry wanted to annul his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon, who had failed to produce a male heir. However, the Pope wouldn't annul it, so what Henry did was that he just broke away, or England away, from the Pope and the Catholic Church and declared himself the head of a new church um, that would annul his divorce for him. And that church became the Church of England, in other words, the Anglican Church. So let's see what the Anglican Church's views are. And actually, this is not so easy, because unlike the Catholic Church, it's a bit more of a moving target. And I'm not going to read all of this, but initially it was similar to the Catholic Church, annulment only, but with time there was increasing permissibility. And most recently, there was a synod in 2002 where they allowed divorce and remarriage under exceptional circumstances. Though some people feel that they have that those exceptional circumstances have become sort of less exceptional with with time. Also a note there that the final decision was always to rest with the local individual minister. And if any of you follow the English royal family, you'll be aware that these different laws have had significant effects on the monarchy as we know it. In fact, Queen Elizabeth II would never have been the queen uh, if it wasn't for some of these laws because her uncle abdicated the throne so he could marry someone that was divorced. So that's all well and good for the Anglican Church if you're Anglican. But how about other Protestant churches? Well, there's quite a bit of variation. And rather than attempt to show you every single one of them, I've got this very handy table from an article from Pastor Bin. Now, um, this is from the Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal. So it's from a Protestant church, and it's from 2019. In other words, it's very recent. And you can see the title there, What the New Testament Teaches About Divorce and Remarriage. And they break it down to three main views, which I think is a good way to think about it. View number one, never initiate divorce, never remarry. Number two, sometimes divorce, never remarry. Number three, sometimes divorce, sometimes remarry. And the grounds of which you can either divorce or remarry are sort of listed there as well. Of note, this is still quite contentious, and there's even contention within the Baptist denomination. John Piper, a very famous Baptist preacher, for example, he advocates view one, never divorce, never remarry. But the author of this article, went for view three, sometimes divorce, sometimes remarry. And just for some further context as well, I've just got a few brief statements about divorce from, uh, from some other sources that I found on the, on the internet. So there's a Westminster Confession of Faith, which basically says that divorce is okay for adultery or abandonment. The AUG also says a similar thing. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the original reformers, also adds in, um, it could also be for not fulfilling conjugal duties. And the Orthodox Church, well, I'm not sure how accurate this is, but the quote is that traditionally they bless first marriage, they perform the second, they tolerate the third, and forbid the fourth. (laughs) So I I, I don't know whether that's true or not. Well, how about Sun Life? Well, Sun Life, we're a reformed, charismatic church. And you may not be aware of this, but that makes makes it very difficult for us to fit in any sort of box. It's, I could say definitely you can't find any Wikipedia articles about reform charismatic churches. So how about us? Well, I believe, and I have checked this with Pastor Ben, that we fall into category three. So view three: sometimes divorce, sometimes remarry. But then, in terms of the grounds for which, we, for which this can occur, two things I have to say. Number one, I encourage you again to read 1 Corinthians 7 for yourselves and make your own decisions. And the second thing is, just as the Anglican Synod in 2002 said, you should also uh, speak to your pastors and elders. So... (laughs) Did you catch that, Pastor? And maybe one for you as well, Elder Simon. So look, it is a complete handball. I completely recognize that. But it's a handball for three reasons. Number one, I don't feel like I'm an expert on the subject, even after preparing for this message, as I said before. Number two, we should also acknowledge as well that people have different circumstances, and it's hard to predict all of them. So these things should always be assessed on a case-by-case basis with grace. But the third and most important reason, right, I'm handballing it, is this. The reason I'm not focusing all this minutiae about divorce um, in this message is that I don't actually think that Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 12, is actually primarily about divorce. Yes, the passage we've been looking at so far in the last 30 minutes is not about divorce. And this is a bit where you go, James, have you lost your mind? Well, it's also where we get to the briefer part two of this message and also where we remember that exercise we did about observation, you know, where we looked at our watches. Because as we said, sometimes we can get so focused on looking for one thing that we fail to appreciate what's really going on. And I think this passage is one of those instances. Remember, we said before to look at the passage with a view to answering the question, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, I want you to completely forget that now. Because as I've said, I don't think this passage is primarily about divorce. Well, how can that be? Well, let's have another look at the verses, and I'll see if I can convince you. In fact, this time, not just looking at them, but looking behind them. Verse 1. Jesus came to teach as we saw, but not with a plan to speak about divorce. Divorce was definitely not one of Jesus's, I guess, top 10 topics to preach on. Compare it to the kingdom of God, to salvation, to love, to faith. Divorce was really way, way, way down there. In fact, Jesus only ever mentions divorce exactly two times in those two episodes that we've already covered. Paul only does once, 1 Corinthians 7, and in the Old Testament, just a few handful of times. Divorce was not a central theological issue, which, as a side note, also means we don't actually need to completely all agree on it either. But in verse 2, we see the only reason that Jesus does talk about it, he was asked by the Pharisees. But even though they asked Jesus about it, the Pharisees were not actually interested in the answer, at least not genuinely. It says here they were only trying to test him. And in what way? To see if he had the knowledge? Maybe. But probably more so to try to entrap him, because something similar to this had happened recently. John the Baptist had spoken out about Herod's marriage to Herodias, which had only occurred because Herodias had divorced Herod's half-brother to do so. And this was considered a big no-no. And because John spoke up about it, Herodias arranged for him to be beheaded, which is the third beheading in this message. So what the Pharisees hoped was that Jesus would also say something controversial as well, particularly now that Jesus had crossed over the Jordan into Herod's territory and therefore suffer a similar fate. So was their question genuine? No, not at all. They didn't actually really care about divorce. And Jesus was equally not interested in answering them, at least not directly. He strategically responds by saying in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And it's expected in verse 4, the Pharisees answer according to the law. So the issue is sort of solved here. They have provided their own answer, and Jesus hasn't risked being entrapped by them. But Jesus doesn't just end it there. He says in verse 5, He wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. And this is a bit of a turning point in this passage, because at this point, Jesus changes the topic from laws about divorce to what he wants to address instead. And what's that? He points out that divorce is and never was ideal, as we said before, but just a concession. And as we read before, Jesus then says in verse 6, "...but from the beginning of creation he made them male and female." Jesus instead redirects them to this interlude about the creation of man and woman. Why does he do this? Well, as we said before, because this was his ideal. He wanted to draw the attention away from divorce and focus instead on what a godly marriage should look like. And I think it also reveals something greater too, what Jesus' overall priority was, not about the law, but specifically his priority was on relationships. What relationships? Well, we see three of them right here. Number one, the relationship of God to mankind. God created them in his image, male and female. Number two, the relationship between child and parents, cleaving as they grew into adulthood. And number three, the relationship between a man and a woman, husband and wife, marriage, becoming one flesh, that what God had joined together, no one should separate a model of the highest and deepest earthly relationship that can occur between two people, a model so precious that Jesus also uses it to describe his relationship with us the church. He is the groom. We at the church are the bride of Christ. Jesus didn't want to dwell on the laws behind divorce. No, he wanted to dwell instead on the sanctity of marriage, the relationship of marriage. Or more broadly speaking, Jesus didn't want to focus on the rules. He wanted to focus on relationships. Why? Well, the answer to this is actually found in the only other episode Jesus talked about um, divorce um, in, in Matthew chapter 5. Because the thing is, just as Mark 10, Matthew 19 isn't about divorce, I also want to say that Matthew 5 is also not about divorce either. Because if Mark 10, Matthew 19 was about Jesus' focus being on relationships and not on rules, Matthew 5 is about the why is about why that is the case. And for that to make any sense, we need to, in our last few minutes, see the context of that Matthew 5 passage. And that's found in verse 17, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. And this may initially sound confusing because Jesus seems to uphold the law here. He says he hasn't come to abolish it. Later, he says nothing shall pass from it. But importantly, he also says he's come to fulfill the law. Why does he say that? Because in verse 20, he explains, For I tell you, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the experts in the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These Pharisees and experts in the law who had read the law, memorized the law, knew the law, and lived the law, Jesus says, unless you are even holier than that, more righteous than that, you will never enter his kingdom. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he explains in the the next few verses. Verse 21 about anger and murder. You have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subjected to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment. Jesus says, yes, the law of Moses said, don't murder. It's part of the Ten Commandments. But now Jesus says, just being angry is a sin. He ups the ante, doesn't he? And then in verse 27, he talks about adultery, saying, you have heard it said it was... You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, he ups that ante. And then we get to our passage before verse 31, which mentions divorce. But you see here, this whole passage is not really about murder. It's not really about adultery. It's not really about divorce, is it? What is it about? It's about Jesus upping that ante, saying, Yes, you had Moses' law. You may even have had all the Pharisees' law. But what he's saying is that none of that is enough because by the law, by the rules, absolutely no one will be saved because no man or woman apart from Jesus can do it. It's impossible. So how do we respond to this? Well, there could be a number of ways. A bad response would be, well, if everything's sin, well, then I'm just going to sin more. A better response would be, well, if we're all sinners then we shouldn't judge anyone else. A grace I believe that we should definitely extend to anyone who's had a break in their marriage. We never cast the first stone. But the best response to this passage is this, to say, if this is the new standard for sin up here, then Jesus, I'm a sinner. I can't do it myself. I can't be righteous myself. I can't be good myself. I need you. Because the rules will never save us. Only a relationship can. Not that the rules are bad. No, the law is good. Not because it can save us. No, we see here that it condemns us. But the rules are good because they point us to God and to Christ. They point us to God because they help us know and understand his character, his wonderful, perfect, holy character. And they also point us to Christ because they also shine a light on our weaknesses, on our sin. Because only when we realize that we can't be holy by following the law itself, the rules do we realize we need that relationship, a relationship with Jesus. The Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf when he sacrificed himself on the cross so that we are no longer under the law but released from the law, dead to the law but alive in Christ. Not under the old covenant anymore but under his new covenant, declared righteous not by our works but by his grace through faith. Jesus is not interested in the rules, but in relationships, because he knows that only through a relationship with him can we meet the requirements of the law and enter his kingdom. Church, one last thing before we close. If you remember, we started off this message by posing that question, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Well, the thing is, that's actually the wrong question to ask, because it's a question from the Pharisees whose focus was on the law. And when you ask that kind of question, what are you really asking? You're asking about the boundaries. You're asking about the limits. You're trying to get permission for something that you know is not God's primary intention, that is not his ideal. Is it lawful if I just do this? Is it okay if I just do that? Will I get into trouble? How close can I get to the boundary before I get caught? How close to the edge can I get? But Jesus is saying here, no, don't look at the boundaries. Don't focus on the law. The rules, the regulations, because those things will only bind you. Focus instead on what's in the center a God who knows you, a God who cares for you, a God who loves you. Then instead of being people who ask, Is it lawful? we will instead be people who ask, Is it right? Is it good? Is it godly? Is it what Jesus would have me do? Instead, of asking the question, Heavenly Father, knowing you through your word, through prayer, through my experience with you day to day, knowing your nature, your character, your goodness, Father, what would you have me do? It's a question we can only ask if we are in relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us through this difficult passage and topic. And I pray that we would have learned what you wanted to teach us this morning. Not necessarily what we may have had questions about, but on what you wanted to teach us. Heavenly Father, we talked here about divorce, and that there are brothers and sisters here who have in the past gone through that pain and that heartache. I pray that your grace and healing will be with them and continue to be with them always. For those who are married now, and perhaps particularly for those who may be going through difficult times, God, I ask that this will be a reminder of the sanctity of marriage, a covenant that you modeled when you created that first man and woman. And it'll be a reminder of the mutual responsibilities that we need to uphold in that relationship. And if people are struggling, may it be that you bring repentance, forgiveness, and understanding into those situations. And that where possible, that healing can occur in those relationships. And for all of us today, we're reminded that you are not primarily a God of rules, but instead you are a God of love, of intimacy, of relationships that you know each one of us you care for us you love us and through your word today maybe may we be reminded that you loved us so much that you offered your most precious relationship that with your son to us to die for us on that cross to take our sins pay our penalty so that the law will no longer have any power over us but instead we can have an eternal bond with you our father